This is Misrepresent Behind the Face of Fierce Woman. Hey everyone, welcome to the final episode for the month of May. I'm your host, Charlene Sayo. This episode is a celebration of women in science and their contributions to social and environmental movements. My guest today is Emily Templewood, a writer, Wikipedia editor, and very recent graduate of biology at Loyola University Chicago. Today also happens to be her birthday, so very happy fierce birthday, Emily. And in keeping with the theme of women in science, this Friday, May 27th, is Rachel Carson's birthday, and to honor the Silent Spring author, scientist, and environmentalist, she's this week's feature in Women Hurrying History. If you want to learn more about contemporary women scientists, check out Season 1 at Misrepresent Podcast and listen to my conversations with Dr. Jennifer Gardy, a senior scientist at the British Columbia Centre for Disease Control and the occasional host of CBC's iconic The Nature of Things. That same year, I also interviewed neuroscientist, dancer and science communicator Dr. Crystal Dilworth. And if you don't know yet, I launched a Kickstarter campaign to raise money for new equipment such as a laptop, a recorder, and microphones. If you enjoy listening to Misrepresent and you'd like to keep this podcast going, please support, donate, and share my fundraising campaign. For more information, please check out the Misrepresent website at misrepresentpodcast.com, like the Facebook page, and follow me on Twitter at Just Call Me Char. This week's musical soundtrack includes tracks from the Underscore Orchestra, Coconut Monkey Rocket, and Costa Rican artist and environmentalist Guadalupe Urbina. And to wrap up, and just before we get to know Rachel Carson, here's the Underscore Orchestra and their Eastern European-inspired track, Newtown Klezmer. Thank you. 
A moment in history. Her story. Women hurrying history. The modern environmental movement, in particular organizers and lobbyists against the use of chemicals such as DTT in agricultural, farming, and gardening practices, owes much of its existence to multi-award winning American scientist, writer, and environmentalist Rachel Carson. Rachel Carson is best known for her 1962 internationally best-selling book, Silent Spring, in which the biologist and ecologist spent several years documenting the dangerous effects of DTT, the core ingredient in pesticides, on the environment and on human health. Used widely during World War II to control malaria and typhus, dichlorodiphenyl trichloroethane, or DTT, was swiftly patented and marketed as an efficient tool against mosquitoes, insects, bed bugs, cockroaches, and more. While DTT effectively wiped out insects, the use of widespread aerial spray of the chemical not only in commercial farms but along suburban neighborhoods and parks caused the deaths of birds and other wildlife. This agitated Rachel to warn and educate the public about the long-term dangers of synthetic chemicals. We have to remember that children born today are exposed to these chemicals from birth, perhaps even before birth. Now what is going to happen to them in adult life as a result of that exposure? We simply don't know. Despite criticisms and attacks by the chemical industry and their lobbyists, U.S. President John F. Kennedy praised Silent Spring and soon after, the environmental movement to ban DTT flourished from the early 1960s onwards, leading to the creation of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency in 1970 and the banning of the chemical in 1973 in the United States. As well as being a dedicated scientist, Rachel was also a writer, authoring several articles and books about nature and the environment. Before winning a scholarship to the Pennsylvania College for Women, Rachel had her sights on an English major, but switched to pursuing a biology degree shortly after beginning her college studies. On scholarship, Rachel completed a master's degree in zoology from John Hopkins University in 1932. Using her passions for nature and writing, Rachel scripted several radio programs about marine biology and wrote scientific articles for publications such as the Baltimore Sun, the Atlantic Monthly, and other science journals and magazines. The balance of nature is built of a series of interrelationships between living things and between living things and their environment. You can't just step in with some brute force and change one thing without changing a bit many others. In 1952, Rachel's writing and environmentalism had her elected into the prestigious American Academy of Arts and Letters. In that same year, Rachel was awarded with numerous honors such as the National Book Award for Nonfiction, the John Burroughs Medal for Nature Writing, the New York Zoological Society for Gold Medal, the Henry Greer Bryant Gold Medal of the Geographical Society, and the Simon Guggenheim Fellow for Research. Aside from her environmental legacy, Rachel was a pioneering science communicator who not only devoted much of her career 
correcting false scientific claims and information, but also popularized and educated the public about nature and the environment. As a woman in science who valued research and documentation, Rachel's expansive writings have not only benefited the scientific community, but is exemplary of women's intellectual work and scholarship. Now, I, I truly believe that we in this generation must come to terms with nature. And I think we're challenged, as mankind has never been challenged before, to prove our maturity and our mastery, not of nature, but of ourselves. Rachel Carson was born in Springdale, Pennsylvania on May 27, 1907, and passed away on April 14, 1964, in her home in Silver Spring, Maryland. A moment in history, her story, women hurrying history. to talk to you about.
everyone, welcome back. I'm your host, Charlene Sayo, and you just heard the eclectic track, Bloops, Bleeps, Bongos, Brass, by the eccentric collective, Coconut Monkey Rocket. Today's guest is Emily Templewood, a very recent graduate of biology from Loyola University, Chicago. This fall, Emily will begin medical school at Midwestern University. Now, aside from her academic achievements, Emily is a prolific writer and essayist on women scientists and is a Wikipedia editor. In 2012, at the age of 18, Emily created the Wiki Project Women Scientists, an initiative that documents the lives, accomplishments, and contributions of women in STEM fields. Now, as if managing this project, writing several essays a week, and attending school full-time wasn't already enough, Emily is also the Vice President of Wikimedia DC and a board member of the Wiki Project Med Foundation. There's so much more I could say about Emily, but I'd rather that you listen to our super fun conversation about women in science, online trolls, feminism, cats, and energy drinks. Hi, Emily. Thank you so much for being here and misrepresent. How's it going? It's going great. Thank you so much for having me. You are going to be done school in about six weeks. I'm so excited. <laughs> now for those, like before we jump into you, the incredible work that you've been doing for the last few years about women in science, can you tell our lovely Canadian listeners and audience, one, your undergrad and then also your minor because you're doing a lot of different things academically <laughs> aside yeah. from your Wikipedia work. <laughs> yeah. So I'm an undergraduate student at Loyola University, Chicago. Um, and my major is molecular biology, so I'll graduate with a bachelor's degree in molecular biology in six weeks. Yes. <laughs> and then I also study Arabic and Islamic studies because I can. Wow. So that's a really incredible uh, combination of art and yeah. science. So I want to know, where do you combine art and science? Yeah, um, it's it's interesting because the Islamic world is such a source of science and a lot of the ancient Greek texts that we have today are preserved because various Islamic empires were able to preserve them while, you know, Western Europe was burning. Um, <laughs> the TL TLDR of Islamic history, they saved a bunch of awesome texts and invented algebra. Um, so it's been cool to see the origins of the stuff that I do in the lab that's super cutting edge and super high tech reflected in the history that I study. And also it's relaxing, you know, to learn learn a language rather than, you know, deal with fruit flies or whatever. <laughs> <ice break. laughs> well, I think that that's an incredible combination. And I think that it also widens people's scope in terms of science and because mm. that's what you're doing in terms of women in science. Now, before we jump into um, your baby project, I want to get into the history in terms of how you even started this project. Now, you mm -hmm. were like 12 years old when you say contributing <laughs> to Wikipedia. Now, a lot of 12-year-olds yeah. don't do that. I know, I mean, I was reading a lot at 12, but I certainly yeah. wasn't writing articles and contributing to Wikipedia. So how did you get into that? I mean, didn't you want to play outside? Uh, so that's funny because whenever people told me to go play outside, I would bring a book oh. <laughs> and go sit, at, like climb a tree and like sit in the tree and read my book. I was really, I was such a weird kid. But yeah, I had actually started by vandalizing Wikipedia, as um, many people of an 11 to 12 year old age do. And then I saw something in the news. I mean, this is almost 10 years ago, so I don't remember exactly what, but it was like, people write Wikipedia and they're real people like you. And I was like, 
oh, I wasted someone's time. I was like, I'm going to do something to like atone for my wiki sins. I was like, (laughs) I'll just do something productive tonight and like make up for it. Uh, And here I am nine years later. I think I've more than made up for it now. (laughs) I think you have. Great. And how did you get into science then? So was this something that you always were interested in in middle school or high school? Or was it something that you wanted to do when you got to college? Yeah, so I had an interesting journey to science as a career. I started out really not knowing what I wanted to do, but knowing that I thought like dissecting things was gross, so I would never be a scientist. (laughs) And then I took like chemistry in high school and I was like, oh, I really like blowing things up. This is great. I'll do this. So I actually started, um, I took like AP biology uh, in high school and I was like, oh, it's fine, but I really hated dissecting things. So I went to college as a physics major. Oh, wow. And, yeah. And then I realized I really hated physics and really <laughs> liked biology. <laughs> so like six weeks in, I was like, oh, crap, panic button, quit physics. And I completely switched to biology. And it was like the right decision for me. And part of why I didn't want to do biology was because it had feminine connotations. And oh, I thought okay. I was being like a bad feminist by wanting to study biology, which is crazy, right? Yeah. But I thought that, you know, I had to do something where I was like punching through barriers all the time and like being, um, one of my friends calls it being a Marine. Like you have to do the thing that you don't really want to do. Um, and I realized that biology, I'd always considered it like the easy science. Oh no, but it's not. Oh, but it's not. (laughs) Well, first of all, I thought part of why I found it so easy was because I really liked it. And so I was really good at it. And then I went to college and halfway through a biology degree, I was like, I want to like shake 14 year old Emily and tell her that biology is really hard while I'm like up late crying over immunology. Like, what are all these proteins and what do they do? Like, it's really hard. No, it's really hard because biology actually has a lot of chemistry in it when you're really studying, for example, like the deep, like cellular, like chemistry. It's, it's really not. Um, an easy science. Easy. I mean, well, I, and I did molecular too, which is yeah. the hard, the hardest of the hard. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to what you just said, where it's people see, or I guess society sees biology as a feminine or mm-hmm. something that only women do, women scientists do, and it's not taken seriously as a serious science. So, where yeah. do you think this attitude comes from? Well, and I've been really lucky because Loyola is a women dominated school like they keep trying to accept more boys and it just keeps staying like 65 percent female which is fantastic um and i go i study in a lab with a female pi who is amazing in every way and there's like two dudes in our lab and we love them and they're lovely but they're the minority so it's really nice and it's just a really welcoming kind environment so so that aspect of if that's what feminization of biology means I'm all for it. Um, but there's actually been this really interesting change in how sciences are, are kind of seen by different genders. So if I can get up on my soapbox for a minute. Oh, please. <laughs> okay, please this, is do. A, this is a soapboxing place. Okay. So these studies have shown that fields that have more women than men in them are devalued by people in that field and outside of that field. So in Russia, um, physicians are not very well paid. And it turns out that most physicians in Russia are women. This extends, like when you look at the United States, there is a direct correlation between the percentage of women in a medical specialty and how 
badly they get paid. The highest paid specialty is um, neurosurgery, which has the lowest percentage of women. And pediatrics is the lowest paid with the highest percentage of women. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, That, yes, yes. That's very true though. So that's a thing. But the way that science has been, I don't want to say appropriated by men, but certain parts of science have been taken over by men and suddenly they become legitimate. And valued. And valued. So for example, midwifery, you know, used to be that you're a witch, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you you know how to help laboring people through childbirth? You're a witch. Burn her. And then all of a sudden, oh, it's obstetrics. Oh, women can't do that. Women aren't allowed to do that. Yeah. And then I find myself writing about these midwives who had to like claw their way up the ladder into the obstetrics, into the establishment that had been stolen from them. So I wrote, there's this midwife, um, her name's Marie LaChapelle, fabulous lady, 1800s in France. She delivered like 30,000 babies in her lifetime. She started, she did her first delivery at 15. Wow. Yeah. Like she was, her mom and her grandma were midwives and then there was somebody given birth and she was like, oh crap, my turn. (laughs) Um, But she was the first midwife allowed to study at the obstetrical hospital in Paris. And she wrote this book, and unfortunately she died of stomach cancer, I think, some kind of cancer, before she could finish publishing the book, but her daughter did it, that was this manifesto against um, the way that obstetrics was being practiced. Like, she advocated against using forceps, she advocated against forcing laboring people to lie down instead of letting, you know, anybody in labor walk around and stuff. Like, she was so ahead of her time, but really she wasn't. She wasn't because those are the things that it's funny because she was writing this like what, 200 years ago? Yeah, yeah. And this these are uh, methods that doctors want women to do now to walk yeah. around a bit, not lie down all the time. So this is a woman that really knows what she was talking about. Because she was a midwife. Exactly. And she's a woman. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. And, and, and you know. All of a sudden, midwifery, oh, that's witchery, whatever. As soon as men get involved, oh, it's obstetrics. It's a valued medical specialty. And, like, I want to become an obstetrician. Um, (laughs) So I'm not, like, dissing on my future field because, you know, obstetrics, when it did become, you know, a science, did become a lot safer. You know, we discovered that corporal infections, maybe you should wash your hands after doing an autopsy before delivering a baby. Surprise! You know, but we see this in field after field after field. So... Another example of this, I'm, I'm, I'm on this soapbox. Yo, please. Can I, can I just like, I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> no, please Wait, be on the soapbox. I it's really not a video want... podcast, but I just stood up <laughs> on my chair. Um, botany. So botany was the domain of women in the 1800s and the 1700s. And, and, you know, because it was like, oh, women can go around and collecting plants. That's so cute. And then they made these massive herbaria that they had then donated to universities, discovered dozens and dozens of new species of plants. And in a lot of cases, give us the only record that we have of the flora and fauna of a different time. And we can see how it's changed in, you know, the past 200 years. So there's these women in Ireland and, um, there's a couple of science historians who have been kind of digging up all of their contributions, like my basically life goals. Um, <laughs> these, these women are amazing. But they found that hundreds and hundreds of Irish women went around the countryside collecting plants in their little area, you know, where they were allowed to go. And now we have records and drawings and descriptions of these species 
And we can see how they've changed and see how climate change has made them change and see how pollution has made them change. And it's so important. But they were denigrated because it was, oh, it's just women collecting plants, despite their extraordinary scientific skill. Yeah, that's incredible. Because that is such a valuable contribution to how we even understand our world and exactly how you, when you were talking about climate change, that's exactly what I was thinking about. Mm -hmm. Because we don't know how far we've gone and the damage that we've also created if we don't know what was happening two, 300 years ago. Yeah. So there's this lady um, back on the soapbox. Her name was Astrid Cleve von Euler, and which is the best name. And she was a stone cold badass, right? And she became a biochemist. Her her ex-husband won the Nobel Prize for the work that they did together at Natch. Um, oh yeah, she had five children while getting her doctorate. And then after researching with her husband, after he dumped her, she had to like go be a high school teacher. And she was like, oh, F this. So what she did was she became a genius like geologist, biologist, and chemist. Oh, so everything. Um, everything, everything, everything. So she... But I mean, she did a bunch of great like research on elemental chemistry that was happening in Sweden at the time because Sweden was like the the center for all of that. But what she did was her her main work was that she studied microorganisms in the waters all around Sweden, and also that that led her to geology. And she started in 1895, and she kept publishing until 1955 when she was 86, um, which is which is crazy. She was like stomping around the wilds of Sweden. And she has she wrote this book in 1951 that had it was 1600 diatom species in Sweden and Finland. And diatoms are like these little little animals that float around in the water and are a really good indicator of pollution and stuff. Okay. So this was published in 1951. Now it's 2016. We're still using her book to see how this stuff has changed because she started publishing these books in 19 or 1895. So we have this record from her entire life. Wow. It's amazing. It's it is amazing. amazing. It is. Yeah. Now it's so cool. <laughs> it is. No, no. That is amazing because these aren't the names that you usually hear when it comes to women in science. You hear only a handful like, you know, Mary mm-hmm. Curry, Rosalind Franklin. If anybody would hear about Rosalind Franklin, you yeah. have Ava Lovelace um, yeah, and yeah, Rachel yeah. Carson. Um, but yeah, that's about it. <laughs> that's about it. That's that's really about it. I mean, you know, maybe people will name if you name if you ask anybody, you know, name a female scientist. They might they'll say Mary Curry. Maybe they'll say you know Diane Fossey. Maybe, maybe even Jane Goodall. Um, maybe <laughs> you have to say the chimp lady. They're like, oh yeah, <laughs> but oh yeah, we know her. Yeah. Oh my so, god, and like, not that Marie Curie wasn't great. Like the whole two Nobel prizes thing, like yeah. great. But there's so many more. There is there's, so much more. There's 16 other women who've won the Nobel Prize in in, in, in like Nobel prizes in science. Yeah. We should hear about them. Exactly. Now, your project, the Wikipedia Project Women Scientists, mm-hmm. goes deep into women scientists. Now, you started this about four years ago. What compelled you to start this project? Yeah, so it wasn't like my idea out of the blue. Okay. Um, Wikipedians have been celebrating Ada Lovelace Day for years, <laughs> which is my favorite holiday. <laughs> <laughs> because I that's that's the kind of person I am. Um, so there is an online we call them editathons where people just get together and work 
um, about women in science. And they had a list of all these women. And I noticed that a bunch of them were fellows of the Royal Society, which is like the Science Cool Kids Club. Um, <laughs> that's the best way I can think of to describe it. It's like the best, the best of the best, the creme de la creme. Okay. And there were all these women who were fellows who didn't have articles. And there's no way that a woman who's the fellow of the Royal Society should not have an article. Like, they're super important. So I sat down. It's a Friday night, right? I'm in my college dorm, my freshman dorm. All these, like, drunk people are coming back from parties, like, like stumbling down the hallway. And, and like, my friends down the hallway were, like, having some raucous party thing. And I'm, like, sitting in the hallway writing about parasitology because I'm a nerd. Got to write, got to, and I stayed up till two in the morning digging through this. And I was like, oh shit, there's so much work to do. And as a Wikipedian, my natural response was start a project. <laughs> so that week I, I sat down and started this project with a few other people who, who seemed interested in the idea. And we found basically the first thing to, to do was we found all the articles that were about women scientists. And we had about 1400 that we wow. found. Wow. 1,400? Yeah, in 2012. And now we have like 5,000. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I said at the beginning of the That's project- That's more than double. Yeah. So I sat down and gave my first talk about, about this the summer of 2013 in, in our annual meeting in Hong Kong. And I said, I think there's about 3,000 total to write about. So, you know, let's write the next 1,600 and we'll be, we'll be good. And I totally had to eat my words. I totally had to eat my words. And like part of that is that a bunch of new scholarship has come out in the past five years about like there was just this great book published about women scientists from Imperial Russia. It's like this a thousand women that she dug up. It's fantastic. But some of it was I was just plain wrong. There are so many more than five thousand, you know, three thousand women scientists to write about. Um, so we've been we've been working and working and working, and it just we just keep finding more and more to write about. Wow, it's crazy! Okay. It is. It's totally nuts. Now, obviously, uh, uh, there's challenges to what you've been doing, and mm -hmm. uh, you did a talk, and you said that one of the challenges that you face is that there's apps, there's deletion, like people are mm. actually deleting articles, a about women in general, and then be about women scientists in particular. So one, who's deleting these articles and why? And yeah. also, how, how are you combating this? Yeah, so it's a, it's a kind of a many fold problem. Um, and they're deleted by the Wikimedia community, usually because we can't provide adequate evidence of what we call notability, okay. which is that did they do something important enough? We have some very strict rules for this. And basically, the sources that I use are the literally one of them is called notable women scientists. <laughs> So those kind of don't really get challenged because like it literally says notable in the title, please stop. Um, <laughs> but the other problem is that there's not always a ton of scholarship mm -hmm. about women in science. Like a lot of these, like I was talking earlier about botanists from Ireland, there's often not a lot of information about them that is easy to find. So it's a problem, like the historians have to like care about it and go digging deep into archives. I have to care and go deep into archives myself. And then, you know, a lot of their contributions got straight up stolen. Okay. Like I'm starting, I'm actually um, starting to write a book because I have all this free time. And like, I haven't got anyone to like agree to publish the thing, but I'm going to write it and it'll 
go up on Amazon as like a free Kindle thing or whatever, but it's about I'm gonna the buy it. So okay, well, thank you. Write it. <laughs> I will. I will. Um, <laughs> it's it's like my 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 labor of love, but it's about the 17 women who should have won the Nobel Prize. I've been writing down the reasons for why they didn't get the Nobel Prize. And a couple of them were like, got killed by cancer or got hit by a bus or whatever. But most of them were like, her shit got stolen. Mm. You know, she didn't get any credit. She was just a technician. So their lives aren't considered recording, but considered worth recording while they're alive. So when they've been gone for two centuries, it's really, really hard to find any more information about them other than they existed. But from the position where I'm coming from, and I've made this argument on Wikipedia and I'll make it everywhere that I can, if their name is recorded, if we know that she existed and contributed, then there's no way that she shouldn't be included because it's probable that she did a whole lot more. But if her name has survived this long, that's a huge indicator of her importance. so that that's where I'm coming from with that. I think that that's amazing. And I want to stay on this subject then because mm-hmm. if you're talking about her name, any woman's name being recorded in history, but there's not much written about her, you know, in the in the history of the world or in books, what are the social impacts then, um, you know, if there's not a lot of resources out there? Yeah, well, so so it has a huge impact, especially on young people. Um, and part of why I, why I do what I do um, is because oftentimes pe- people don't have access to the same, like they don't have access to this beautiful college library the way that I do. And a lot of these women aren't on the internet. You can't Google their name and find them. Mm-hmm. So it's making making their stories accessible. And what that does is there was a study done at, I think, Fermilab a couple years ago that really kind of hit home the importance of what we're doing. They had kids who were like sixth, seventh graders draw a picture of a scientist and invariably they all drew like old white dudes with crazy hair like in lab coats who like looked like they were gonna blow stuff up not that I don't know scientists like that but then they met a bunch of real scientists from Fermilab who were you know women and people of color and you know some of them were disabled and some of them you know spoke a bunch of languages and then they asked them to draw scientists again and not a single one of them drew an old white dude in a lab coat they all drew, you know, people wearing jeans and people of color and women, and it was fantastic. So it's about changing the perception of what a scientist looks like. And I hope that, you know, even if it's just one little girl who reads an article about, you know, a black woman physician and says, oh, she looks like me, I could do that. That's that's a victory. That's a big step al- already. Mm-hmm. It's about changing the perception of what a scientist is and what a scientist can be. And what the scientists can also really contribute. Mm-hmm. When you started the Wikipedia Project Women Scientists, um, were you expecting the online harassment and the trolls? I mean, because, <laughs> you know, you can understand there are women who are constantly being attacked. And mm-hmm. one of the one of the recent attacks was against Anita Sarkeesian from Feminist mm-hmm. Frequency her home wasn't even safe. Yeah, Were yeah. you expecting that kind of harassment and trolling? So I haven't had quite the level of um, harassment that Anita has had. Since I started on Wikipedia, I've been doing administrative things. And it was not widely known that I was like a young woman. And by young, I mean like 13. So people thought I was like a grown up, which was really weird. Um, <laughs> and I did a lot of like vandalism fighting. Like I would, you know, delete crappy articles. So I got a lot of like random trolling then. So I, you know, I'm like 13 and I'm sitting 
you know, in my middle school library reading things about how some random dude is going to come rape me and murder my family while I watch, which is kind of mild. And then once I stopped doing that, it faded because that's a way to put like that puts you in direct contact with the people who are, are, who think that making people feel terrible on the internet is fun. Um, and so then I just kind of got a more generic level of like, Oh, you're a woman kind of troll. Like people would see my user page, which has be, it has a picture of me. So it's, and I, I present as a very femme person. So it was pretty obvious that I'm like a young woman. So I'd get a lot of like nice titties emails mm-hmm. is what I call them. Yeah. You know, and then I became a part of the English Wikipedia arbitration committee, which is, um, it's a dispute resolution group that kind of helps to solve problems and can ban people basically. Um, and that got a lot of trolling just for being a woman. And then Reddit discovered the Women Scientists Project. Oh, no. Uh, the thing that stuck with me is that they called my project Feminist Lies. And so how did you deal with that and resolve it then? Because, I mean, it's not going to stop anytime soon until I think social attitudes towards women's accomplishments change. So yeah. how have you dealt with it then? Like I, I would be like, well, screw this guy. I'm going to go do some science. And I would like stomp off to the lab and go do experiments or whatever. Or like, well, fine. You're wasting your time. I'm going to you know, go do something useful with my life. And that kind of spiraled into like, well, he must hate women scientists. So I'm going to go write about women scientists because screw you. That's why. And then it evolved into like, all right, fine. Uh, one for one. Okay. Every time you, every time you say something nasty about me, I write more about women scientists. You waste your time. <laughs> <laughs> with, the, with the little smile at the end. I think that that is an amazing way to deal with trolls and harassment. Well, thank you. Uh, that Well, one, it's productive. And I think more people benefit. And I think more yeah. women benefit. And society just benefits with very yeah. good information and important information. I'm glad to see that you're, the, you. the rage is uh, – <laughs> it's fueled as something productive. Because I think that that's yeah. a lot of times that's where it comes from. Because mm-hmm. you can sit around. You can stomp. And yeah. you'll feel better in the moment. But, like, if I can calm myself down enough to, like, angry type, yeah. and if I angry type about women scientists and not, like, how dare you say these things about me, everybody wins except for trolls. Exactly. And I think <laughs> that it, it creates more space for women, and I think that's also one of the key factors is to make more and more women visible, which is exactly what you're doing. Now, huh. it's been four years since the project started. Mm-hmm. What has changed you know, and, and what have you, that's a lot of learning in it's four grown. years. It's grown. Yeah, yeah. So we've done a lot of really cool projects. If I can kind of just spew about those for of a minute. Of course, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's so fun to get to talk about stuff that's not me. Um, <laughs> so, so we've grown from like three people to like 70 people or 70 plus people. Um, in the past four years, which is amazing. We've gotten things organized better. Um, We've held all these events online and offline. I used um, all of this to make a whole program that people can use to write a, like, have events around whatever topic that they want, whether it's, you know, African-American ballet dancers or Indian music or whatever they're interested in. Last summer, yes, last summer, my friend Rosie, who is an incredible Wikipedia editor, um, like she's written so many more things than I will ever, ever write. 
she's a huge feminist, started this project called Women in Red. And it's like the parent project to women scientists and women artists and women X. And what they do is it's like the central clearinghouse for writing new articles about women. And it's called Women in Red because articles that don't exist yet on Wikipedia, when you link them, they show up red. So we like that. And, and right now we're running, I'm helping her coordinate this event with the Wiki Education Foundation, which is they support um, Wikipedia in schools. And they're doing this thing called Year of Science. So women scientists, women in red, and the Education Foundation are all teaming up to have April through December writing about women scientists. And we've collected all these names. We've collected all these people. It's incredible. It's like so much synergy to use the buzzword or whatever. Wow. It's so awesome. It is. Join us. Yes, I want to. That's the plug, yeah. I will talk to you more about that later. (laughs) No, that's really, really incredible. Now, it's you have such a generosity about this. I mean, you want things accessible. You want people to get involved. You don't appear to be somebody who's going to hoard all of this and say, this is my property. Nobody else can touch it. Oh, God, no. <laughs> no, where does this come from? Where where does your it, sense of um, your generous spirit towards this project and towards accessing information come from? It's really, it's the spirit of Wikipedia. We have a very strong ethos of what we make is for everybody. And there's a lot of policy, there's like an official policy, but a lot of essays on Wikipedia about the community's ethos. And one of the primary things is you don't own your articles. Like you can have written every word and you still can't like fight people when they want to change it. I mean, you, you can if they're you know wrong, but if someone wants to rewrite a sentence you wrote, that's absolutely their prerogative. And, you know, you need to be respectful and discuss with other people, but it's definitely a part of the community that everything belongs to everyone. So you ha- it's not my project. It's a project I started and kind of coordinate. It's not my articles. It's articles that I wrote and that now belong to everybody. Wow. That's a really great perspective. And that's I- the theory. <laughs> it's a theory. <laughs> it's the theory. It doesn't always work in practice, but, like, that's how we try. We try. Well, you strive for it. And I think that a lot of women, especially for myself, when I saw, you know, the the page on women scientists, I was like, to me, that's gold. Like, I see that as a huge resource. I mean, forget clothes. That doesn't excite me. But when I saw these lists of women, I'm like, wow, more women to learn about and to read about and hopefully to write about, too. Yes. Um, because there's just – there's so much. Um, and this project is even just going through a very tiny skill of science because – I think you said once that there's still a huge lack of like women from the Eastern world who have been mm-hmm. who haven't been highlighted yet. And there's so much that have so many women that ha- are doing mm-hmm. science in the East. Yeah. And so um, the global South is definitely a major, a major deal. And like most of the people that I write about are either white or from the global North, yeah. just because I, I speak English and those are mainly Anglophone countries. And also History is written by the victors, and the victors are white men. So there's a huge bias towards, you know, those women, and the contributions of women from the global south and women of color are often discounted. So you can't even read about them. And I do the best that, like, we do the best that we can yeah. by trying to find these women wherever they exist. Um, but then we get into the problem of scholarship about women in science, and how that's 
you know, except for a very few bright shining stars, uh, it's been lacking for most of human history. So what are you trying, are you trying to encourage then more women from the global south and more women of color to, to also get involved? Yeah, so um, the, the organization I work with, Wikimedia District of Columbia, um, which is, we're like a local charity that supports local events around the D.C. area. One of our primary, and I'm in Chicago, but I help run things in D.C. anyways because the internet's great. It lets you do anything you want. Um, we have a really strong commitment to diversity. It's like our, our main priority for the next like five years. So we do, there's a lot that we can do um, to encourage that. So we work with organizations um, for people of color throughout the D.C. area and throughout the U.S. And the benefit of being in D.C. is that all of the national X organizations are based there. So we work with, you know, the Smithsonian um, museums and we work with the, we work with Howard University a lot because they have all these amazing archives about African-American people. It's amazing. So we're working, that's what we're doing right now is to get more people involved in person. Okay. Now, what's in store for the future? For your future, you're graduating in six weeks. Where are you going after grad? And then also the future of the Wikipedia Project Women Scientists. Sure. So my future is medical school. Um, I've been accepted to medical school and I'm starting in August. Congratulations. Thank you. Ah, I'm very excited about it. So I will be studying to get my doctorate at a university called Midwestern University, which is actually in my hometown, which is really weird. Like whose hometown has a medical school? Like what the heck? Well, your hometown does. My hometown does. Like I trespassed on their property when I was a little kid running around in the woods like Sorry. So that's what I'll be doing. And that'll probably, um, you know, that'll take up a lot of my time. But uh, the project Women Scientists will continue whether or not I'm there. Hopefully I will be. The plan is to just continue expanding and find and exploit the resources that we all have access to with our libraries and with programs like the Wikipedia Library, which brings resources to Wikipedians who don't have access to great university libraries. And, you know, to continue our efforts in historiography, like we're amateur, we're all amateurs, right? Well, most of us, uh, there's a few professionals in there, but we're, you know, amateur historians, amateur biographers, but we've been given this great platform to help create a legacy for these women in science. And um, I don't know if you're familiar, but I'm like currently obsessed with the musical Hamilton. And (laughs) who isn't obsessed with the musical Hamilton? (laughs) Okay, good. Good. Um, my cat, because she has to endure bad white girl rapping. Um, <laughs> she's not obsessed. But, you know, it, it, it puts into words a lot of the things that we're trying to do. We're trying to tell these women's stories and we're trying to put them in the narrative of women in, of, of people in science. You know, let women be a part of that narrative. Right. Yeah. And and make sure that they get their due and that they're not forgotten. Wow. OK. That is the best way to end. Thank you so much, Emily. It's been so great talking to you. You too. (laughs) This is so fun. Some
paz. Llueve por los siglos de los siglos sobre el empa y el motagua, sobre el tempiste y el San Juan. Thank you. 
Hey everyone, you're listening to the lush music of Costa Rican singer-writer, songwriter, environmentalist, and activist, Guadalupe Urbina. Because this episode has been dedicated to women in science and the environment, it only seems fitting to close out with one of Costa Rica's most recognizable artists and activists. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with biologist and writer, Emily Temple Wood. For more information and updates about Emily, you can follow her on Twitter at Kailani Wiki. You can also listen to past episodes featuring extraordinarily fierce women at misrepresentpodcast.com. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Just Call Me Char for future shows and guests. Intro and outro music by Emily Simone. Additional music by Ben Sound Music, Steve Combs, The Arthur Pryor's Marching Band, The Underscore Orchestra, Coconut Monkey Rocket, and Guadalupe Urbina. Fiercest thank you and happy birthday to my guest, Emily Templewood. Shoutouts to Elise Cloma, Jessica Liao, Mitch Lee, Jordan Leesk, and Stephanie Wrangle. And of course, thank you, fierce listeners and supporters. Tune in next week for another fierce episode featuring another fierce woman. I'm your host, Charlene Sayo. This is Miss Represent, Behind the Face of Fierce Woman.